0: Hi, it's Vanessa. All of us at ParCast want to thank you for your continuing support throughout the year. ParCast could not be what it is today without you. We also wanted to give you a heads up that we're taking a break for the holidays and we won't be back until after the new year. But since the season is all about giving, we do have something special lined up for the next two weeks, so be sure to tune in. In the meantime, enjoy the season, and we'll be back the first week of January with your regular programming. Have a happy and safe new year. Due to the graphic nature of these women's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of abortion, drugs, suicide, assault, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. What's worse, to take a life and walk away, or go on to comfort the victim's friends and family, pretending to search for the killer? For Irene Avila, losing her daughter Missy was unbearable, but when she found out that it was her daughter's closest friends who killed her, it was an unimaginable blow. By then, she'd leaned on them for support, for company, for guidance, She'd even taken one into her home and treated her as her own daughter for years. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes, but what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from ParCast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met Karen Severson and Laura Doyle, two teens whose jealousy of their friend Missy Avila eventually got out of control. When both girls thought Missy was out to steal their boyfriends, they were consumed with thoughts of revenge, until one day, those thoughts crystallized into violent action. This week, we'll look at the aftermath of Missy's murder, While Laura retreated and laid low, Karen moved in with the Avila family, inserted herself into the investigation, and did everything possible to help police find the killer until three years later, when the truth finally came to light.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries, for some,
0: On October 1, 1985, 17-year-old Missy Avila entered a remote clearing in Camp Colby, an area of the Angeles Forest. The forest lay about 30 miles east of Arleta, California. She'd been driven there by her friends, 17-year-old Karen Severson and 18-year-old Laura Doyle. The girls had been jealous of Missy for years, Now, convinced she was out to steal their boyfriends, they'd hatched a plan to torture her. As Missy sat on a rock near a stream, they began the abuse. They called her names and screamed at her. Then Laura grabbed Missy's head and pulled it back. Karen took out a knife and began to chop off chunks of Missy's long brown hair, a symbol of her beauty and popularity. Missy cried out, begging them to stop, but they ignored her pleas. They wanted to show her who was in charge. After they were done, Laura stepped into the stream. She called for Missy to join her, but when Missy refused, Karen pushed her into the water. She took a few hesitant steps forward. Then Laura grabbed her arm, pulling her in. At this point, a fourth girl on the scene, Eva Cherumbolo, took off and ran. Eva wasn't part of the scheme and barely knew Missy. She'd been brought along by Karen at the last minute. She'd watched, becoming more and more uneasy as the two girls escalated their attacks on Missy. Now she sensed things were taking a bad turn and she wanted to get away. She ran as fast as she could down the hill. She headed toward the girls' cars parked in a dirt lot, but when she got there, the cars were locked. There was no way to escape. She headed back up the hill, and that's when she heard the scream that stopped her in her tracks. Back in the clearing, Karen and Laura were holding Missy down in the water, The stream was only about eight inches deep, but it was enough to submerge Missy's head. She flailed, struggling against them, but the girls held tight. They had no intention of letting her go. Before we continue with Karen and Laura's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. For years, Missy's friends had wanted to gain the upper hand in their relationship with her, and now it seemed they'd found the way to do just that. According to an article on youth violence in the Journal of Interpersonal Violence by M. Megan Davidson and Gary L. Canave. Many researchers have identified risk factors for teens who perpetrate violence. These include exposure to violence in families and communities, authoritarian or inconsistent parenting, and antisocial attitudes and beliefs. Karen Severson was clearly prone to violence. She'd already lashed out at Missy several times before this. She'd screamed at Missy, and even slapped her, in an attempt to get her to do things Karen wanted. Since childhood, Karen had been highly manipulative, and she wasn't above using outright force to get her way. Laura seemed primed for violence, too. Growing up with alcoholic parents who often fought likely made her more susceptible to the use of force. Davidson and Canave's research shows that kids who witness violence are more likely to engage in it themselves. Today, it's unclear who initiated the drowning or if both girls were equally involved. We also don't know if murder was part of the plan or if it was a spontaneous decision made once they were atop the mountain. But in the end, It didn't matter. Both girls enabled each other with their violent tendencies and deep-seated hatred of Missy. They held Missy's head under the water until she lost consciousness. Then to make sure she wouldn't be able to move, Karen and Laura hauled a 100-pound log over to the stream. They placed it on Missy's back, pinning her down. Then they ran. Eva was waiting by the cars, positive that something terrible had happened. When Karen and Laura came running down the hill without Missy and with frantic, panicked faces, she knew she was right. Karen got into her car and sped off. Laura climbed into hers too, shouting at Eva to get in. Eva wanted to ask what happened, but she was too scared to learn the answer. Instead, she got into the passenger seat just as Laura hit the gas. As Laura drove down the mountain, she ranted and raved, switching between an array of emotions. She laughed, then cried, and then, finally, confessed to Eva that they had killed Missy. Eva's stomach dropped, and then Laura hit the brakes. Laura wondered aloud if Missy might still be alive and if they should go back, although Eva wasn't sure if Laura wanted to save her or finish the job. Eva knew this could be her chance to go back and try to help Missy, but something about going back to the scene frightened her, and she was even more terrified to spend another hour near Laura and Karen. She shook her head. She told Laura it was too late and too dark. Laura nodded in agreement and started the car again. Eva sunk into the passenger seat. She felt sure she'd just made a terrible mistake. Around 6 p.m. that evening, Laura called Missy's mom, Irene. Laura asked Irene if Missy was home yet. Irene was confused. She thought Missy was with Laura. She'd watched the girls leave together just a few hours earlier. That's when Laura dove into her story. She said she and Missy saw three guys in a blue Camaro at the park, who Missy apparently knew and wanted to talk to. But Laura needed to get gas, so she left Missy at the park with the boys while she filled up her tank. By the time she got back, Missy and the guys were gone. Laura said she assumed Missy took off with them and that she'd eventually gone home. When the story was over, Irene thanked Laura for calling and said she'd keep an eye out for Missy. It wasn't out of the question that her daughter might head off with some friends without telling anyone, so while Irene still felt anxious, she told herself not to get too worried. But then two hours passed, and Missy hadn't called to say she would be late, which was very out of character. Another two hours went by, then another. When Irene's sons, 19-year-old Mark and 12-year-old Chris, came home around midnight, they found Irene on the couch. She'd fallen asleep, waiting for Missy. The next morning, Irene startled awake. She went straight to Missy's bedroom, expecting her to have come in late. But the bed was empty. Finally, real dread took hold of Irene. Something was wrong. She started knocking on the doors of Missy's friends' houses to see if any of them knew where she was. She called the police too, but they told her they couldn't do anything until Missy had been gone for 24 hours. Irene watched the clock. Missy didn't come home. Finally, at 3 p.m. on October 2nd, 1985, Irene went to the police station and filed a report. Missy was officially a missing person. While police looked for Missy, Laura went to work and stayed quiet. She showed concern for Missy's disappearance, but she didn't get too involved with trying to find her. Karen, however, took a different tack. She marched over to the Avila household, looked Irene right in the eye, and told her that she'd do whatever it took to find Missy. For three straight days, Karen stayed by Irene's side. Missy's friends and family called anyone and everyone who might have crossed Missy's path. Even as detectives feared the worst, Irene held out hope her daughter, would be found. On October 4th, three days after the murder, she was. Two hikers who regularly trekked through Angeles National Forest noticed something odd when they went through Camp Colby. A log was missing from its usual spot. They saw that it had been moved to a nearby stream, so they walked over and inspected it, curious how it had gotten there. And then they saw something underneath it, a body. The hikers sounded the alarm and authorities raced to the forest. According to author Karen Kingsbury, a detective we'll call Aisha Gray, was one of the first officers on the scene. As police collected evidence and photographed the area, she searched for clues about who might have done this. It appeared to be a deliberate drowning. The log had clearly been placed on top of the body. There was no way it could have just fallen there. The coroner did a preliminary exam on site, and the findings supported Detective Gray's instinct. They found bruises all over the girl's face and arms, suggesting she was beaten up, then pushed face first into the stream and held underwater. It also appeared as if someone had cut off the victim's hair. Detective Gray found clumps of hair on a nearby rock, noticing that it had been chopped off haphazardly. Finally, she found a purse, and inside it, a school ID. It was Missy Avila's. When Irene heard the news, she was devastated. But the next day, Karen was right there to comfort her. Irene was so thankful to have Missy's best friend by her side, helping her through the loss. While she couldn't imagine life without her daughter, she had faith that Missy's killer would be found. And she knew that she wouldn't have to bear this alone. Working off of Laura Doyle's story, detectives compiled a list of every Camaro registered in California and began to sift through it. Even if the boys in the Camaro weren't involved in Missy's death, they would hopefully be able to shed some light on what happened to her. As they continued their investigation, Detective Gray puzzled over one detail – Missy's chopped off hair. Cutting off hair felt like a distinctly feminine form of violence. This didn't gel with Laura's story about the group of boys. The detectives' intuition told her that a woman was involved. But she kept that information to herself. She didn't even tell Irene. While the detectives chased down the blue Camaro lead, an unofficial investigation was beginning to form, spearheaded by Karen. Karen had two reasons for getting involved, one, self-preservation. She wanted to make sure she was one step ahead of the authorities at all times, so she could steer them in any direction except the one leading to her. The second was more complicated, loyalty. She wanted to further endear herself to the Avila family. Over the years, she and Laura had become like second daughters to Irene. Ever since the day she met Missy when they were eight, Karen envied her family. Now with Missy gone, she could actually take Missy's place in the Avila's home. A week after Missy's death, Karen, who was pregnant by her boyfriend Randy Fernandez, began staying at the Avila house. Soon, she and her toddler daughter had practically moved in. No one thought much of it. After all, she was doing so much for the family, it just made sense to stay at the house. That way, she could help Irene search for Missy's killer day and night. No one suspected that the killer was right under the Avila's roof. Laura, on the other hand, avoided the Avalas. She attended Missy's memorial and sent Irene a condolence card, but that was all she could muster. It might have seemed odd that one of Missy's friends was so distant, but nobody really noticed. It seems everyone just felt bad for Laura. As the last person to see Missy alive, they assumed she blamed herself for Missy's death. But Laura wasn't the only one keeping her distance. Eva Cherumbolo was also staying silent. She didn't go to the memorial or speak to anyone about Missy. She was terrified that if she did, Karen and Laura might come for her next. Up next, Karen's accusations turn deadly. Hi, listeners, it's Vanessa. If you haven't had a chance to check out the entertaining new podcast, Blind Dating, now's the time to binge what you've missed before catching all new episodes every Wednesday. In this Spotify original from Parcast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Join host Tara Michelle as she introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio will will get to know one another without the distraction of appearances. But once the cameras are turned on, is personality still enough for these strangers to fall for each other? Or will they say farewell? Connect with new episodes of Blind Dating every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. On October 1st, 1985, 17-year-old Karen Severson and 18-year-old Laura Doyle lured their friend, 17-year-old Missy Avila, into the forest and drowned her. While Laura laid low afterward, Karen began her own sham investigation. She also moved in with Irene Avila, comforting her and promising to help find Missy's killers. As far as Irene was concerned, Karen was true to her word. Every evening, Karen gathered together a group of Missy's friends and family to brainstorm possible leads. The group included Missy's brothers, along with Laura's ex, Victor Amaya, and several others close to Missy and her friends. One night, Karen convinced the group to go to Angeles National Forest to look for clues the cops might have missed. They were all so riled up, they agreed, even though it was dark outside and they likely wouldn't find anything. It may seem odd that Karen would want to go back, but it's actually not out of the ordinary for criminals to return to the scene of their crime. According to the characteristics laid out by criminologists Ronald and Stephen Holmes in their book Profiling Violent Crimes, Karen was likely an organized, non-social offender this type of criminal is likely to stay involved in the aftermath of their crime because it feels like a game to them. Not only do they go back to the crime scene, they even interact with police, all because they think they can stay one step ahead of them at all times. And this is often true. The authors write that this type of person may be the last to be suspected of a crime. This was certainly true for Karen. As she led the group to Camp Colby, she never dreamed that she might get caught. She was having too much fun being the one who held all the cards. The group headed up the mountain and pulled into the dirt parking lot. Then they walked up the same path the four girls had taken on October 1st, though Karen pretended that she'd never been there before. Once they got to the clearing, Missy's brother found words carved into a tree. Karen and Missy, friends forever. And Randy and Karen, 1985. There were slash marks through all the words. Suspicious, her friends asked Karen why she'd said she hadn't been there before. Karen swore she was telling the truth. And before anyone could question her too much, Karen switched tactics. She said that it must have been Randy who'd come up there and cross the names out. And if he'd done that, then he must have been the one to kill Missy. Everyone was shocked. The logic didn't exactly line up, but they were desperate for answers. It's possible they also assumed Karen wouldn't accuse Randy, the father of her unborn child, of murder unless she was sure. But the more they thought about it, the more it made sense. Randy had been in love with Missy since junior high, and while the two had dated briefly a few years back, she'd moved on a long time ago. Randy hadn't. The next day at the Avila house, Karen phoned Randy, and in front of the entire group, accused him of killing Missy. He denied it, but it didn't matter. The accusation was out there. Soon word spread through the community that Randy was the murderer and many believed it, especially Karen's friends. And now everyone wanted Randy to pay for Missy's murder, Karen most of all. It wasn't enough for Karen that people suspected Randy. She wanted them to want justice, and to her, this meant Randy had to die. It was an extreme step, but Karen likely felt that if she didn't encourage the group to take Randy out, it would look like she had doubts, and she couldn't afford anyone to think she doubted her own accusation. To execute the plan, she enlisted the help of another of Missy's admirers, Victor Amaya. He was up for whatever it took to get justice for Missy. And with a few other friends, the group made a plan to kill Randy. A week later, Karen put the plan into action. She called Randy and invited him to a party. She apologized for accusing him of murder and told him that she wanted to put it all behind them. Randy didn't want to go, but knew if he didn't, it would look like he was hiding something. At 8 p.m. that evening, Karen picked Randy up from his house. When she pulled up in front of the party spot, Karen apologized to Randy again, stalling for time. Then Randy stepped out of Karen's car. By now, Victor was standing in front of the house with several guys. Randy didn't see them until one of them smashed a beer bottle over his head. As the young men beat Randy, Karen looked on, smiling. Victor kicked Randy in the ribs over and over with his steel-toed boot. At one point, someone heard a rib crack. Randy doubled over, but Victor kept kicking. Karen and the others started to chant, egging Victor on. Finally, Victor stopped. Randy lay on the ground, not moving and barely conscious. Then everyone went into the house, leaving him on the sidewalk. As they went, Randy heard Karen exclaim proudly that they'd killed him. It was the last thing he heard before passing out. When Randy woke up, he somehow managed to call out for help While the rest of the teenagers were still inside, he was shepherded to the hospital. Despite the doctor's pleas, Randy refused to file a police report. He was terrified that if he did, Karen and her crew would come back to finish the job. He was right to be scared of her. After finding out that he'd survived the beating, Karen was even more determined to take Randy out of the picture. And her commitment to the fiction that Randy was the killer was absolute, which might explain what she did next. In mid-November 1985, Karen aborted their child. She told everyone it was because Randy had killed her best friend. Some chalked it up to extreme grief over losing Missy. Others thought Karen terminated the pregnancy just to hurt Randy. But Karen didn't just want to hurt him. She wanted him dead. Her group of amateur investigators felt the same way. They didn't trust that if they left things up to the police, that Missy's family would ever get justice. They wanted to take matters into their own hands. In Karen's mind, if Randy was gone, he wouldn't be able to prove his innocence, and everyone would just accept he was Missy's killer. It didn't seem to matter to Karen that if she killed Randy to cast blame on him for Missy's murder, then she would still be incriminated for his death. It seemed that in addition to drawing suspicion away from herself, Karen was also obsessed with vengeance against Randy. This was likely because she felt he still favored Missy over her, even while she and Randy lived together expecting a baby. Karen had always been single-minded, and this was no different. All she could see was the goal ahead. So three days before Thanksgiving, 1985, 18-year-old Karen, Victor, and another friend who we'll call Sean got together and hashed out another plan to kill Randy. They decided that Victor and Sean would park outside Randy's apartment at night and wait for him in the dark. When he got home, they'd shoot him, then pour acid on his body until he was burned beyond recognition. The next day, Victor and Sean waited outside of Randy's apartment, but he never showed. So they tried again a second night But just as Randy pulled up and Victor took aim, Sean stopped him. It didn't feel right. Suddenly, both Victor and Sean wondered if Randy was really responsible, or if they were just blinded by their need for revenge. When the boys told Karen they hadn't been able to do it, she was livid. She wanted them to go back and finish the job. But she soon realized that it was no good— They had doubts about Randy's guilt, and those doubts were sure to grow. Karen knew she was losing control, so she would just have to find someone else to finger for the crime. Up next, a surprise witness comes forward.
1: This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop?
0: Now, back to the story. After murdering Missy Avila in October 1985, 17-year-old Karen Severson moved in with Missy's family, while 18-year-old Laura Doyle retreated from the scene. Karen even accused her ex-boyfriend of killing Missy and plotted with friends to murder him. But when those plans fizzled out, Karen turned her attention elsewhere. First, she accused another boy from school who she didn't like. When that went nowhere, she accused another of Missy's friends. But Missy's mother, Irene, balked at that idea. There was no way someone so close to her daughter could have been involved. During this whole period, 18-year-old Laura stayed away from the Avila family. She couldn't bring herself to show up at the house and pretend to search for Missy's killer. Instead, she leaned on drugs and alcohol to help her cope with the guilt. By the holidays, she was depressed and withdrawn, but her parents failed to notice. They were alcoholics themselves, and according to author Karen Kingsbury, they were likely too deep into their addiction to realize that something was wrong with their daughter. As Laura descended further into drug use, the police hit a dead end. By June of 1986, they'd exhausted all their leads. The story of the Blue Camaro Laura told them had gone nowhere, and they were at a loss no one could figure out what had happened to Missy Avila up in the forest that fateful day. It was becoming clear that if they were ever going to solve this case, they'd need a miracle. In September of 1987, they got it. Almost. Nearly two years after Missy's death, Karen called Irene with some surprising news. She said that Laura was ready to reveal the true story of the last time she'd seen Missy. Irene was stunned. She immediately called the detectives and they all gathered to listen to Laura tell them that there had never been a blue Camaro. Instead, Laura said that on October 1st, she had dropped Missy off at a church parking lot in Los Angeles. According to Laura, Missy was meeting a drug dealer there whom she owed $500. As she got out of the car, Missy told Laura that her dealer would bring her home. The detectives and Irene stared at Laura. No one could understand why she hadn't said this before. Laura claimed she hadn't wanted Irene to be mad that Missy was dealing drugs, but this made no sense. Of course, Irene would have wanted the truth, anything that could have led the police to Missy's killers. Detectives chased down this new lead, but there was something about Laura that they just didn't believe. Her story was too perfect. It felt oddly rehearsed. And if it were true they wondered why she had really kept it to herself for so long. They questioned her several times to see if she'd slip up, but each time she gave the same practiced tale. As for why Karen and Laura decided to change the story two years later, we can only guess. But one possible explanation is that Karen had gotten used to the attention she received as the leader of her unofficial investigation. To keep herself in the spotlight, she needed a new lead for police to follow. According to many criminologists, there are certain personality traits that can be linked to criminal activity. One of those is a tendency to demand attention. Assistant professor of psychology Kendra Thomas explains that this kind of attention-seeking gives a person a sense of power, like they have an audience. Karen had always felt overshadowed by Missy. But now that her friend was out of the picture, Karen was empowered. She didn't want to lose that sense of control that she had carefully cultivated over the last two years. She likely convinced Laura to tell this new story just so they could inject some life into the investigation, so they could give Karen a purpose. The new round of questioning and lying took a toll on Laura. She had already been struggling with her addiction, but now things took a turn for the worse. Her cocaine use spiraled out of control. It's possible that she just couldn't handle being sober, not with what she knew, what she had done. Just days after telling her new story, 20-year-old Laura checked herself into a treatment facility. She stayed there for a full month until she was clean and given the green light to go home. But it seemed her guilty conscience was too much for her. The day after she got out, she started using cocaine again. Around the same time, Karen began showing signs of instability as well. During the holidays that year, she seemed severely depressed. Irene tried to get her to see a psychiatrist, but Karen refused. She already knew what was wrong with her, and it was nothing she wanted to talk to a therapist about. There was one bright spot in Karen's life. She seemed to have gotten away with murder. She still had occasional nightmares where she saw Missy, but she could deal with those. On the whole, however, she felt out of danger, until one tragic, unexpected event. In early 1988, Eva Cherumbolo's 18-year-old brother died by suicide. It was a horrible shock, and for the first time, Eva truly understood what the Avila family must have felt after Missy's death. Losing her brother made Eva realize she had to tell the truth about Missy. She couldn't keep the secret any longer. It took her six months to work up the courage. But finally, on July 26, 1988, Eva called the police. She told them she had information about Missy's murder. Detective Aisha Gray raced to Eva's apartment in Arleta, unsure what she was about to hear. She tried not to get her hopes up too high, but she was optimistic that this might be the breakthrough they had been waiting for. Detective Gray listened in shock as Eva recounted everything that happened on that day in October 1985. Never at any time had she suspected Karen or Laura. Suddenly though, it all made sense. Why Laura had lied about her story. Why Karen was so eagerly involved in the investigation. Detective Gray wondered how she couldn't have seen what was right in front of her this whole time. Just to make sure this wasn't another story, the detective pressed Eva for details about how exactly Karen and Laura tormented Missy before killing her. When Eva told her about the haircutting, Detective Gray was convinced. It was the one piece of evidence that she had held back from the public. Only someone who had been there that day would know. At last, they had a witness. And... They had their murderers. The next day, almost three years after Missy's death, Detective Gray and her partner called 20-year-old Karen and 21-year-old Laura in for questioning. She made sure to schedule it so that they crossed paths in the lobby. Karen arrived first, sitting with her new boyfriend and her five-year-old daughter in the lobby. As always, Karen believed she was still in control of the investigation. She didn't think for a moment that she was there to be questioned as a suspect. But then, Laura walked in the door and Karen gasped. This wasn't a part of her plan, and Karen had a sinking feeling that she was about to be ambushed. Before Karen and Laura could speak to one another, detectives swooped in and took them to separate rooms. There, they let them sit for an hour, giving them time to wonder what was happening outside, beyond their claustrophobic rooms. It was all a part of their plan to break them down. Finally, Detective Gray arrived to speak with Karen. She told her that Laura had spilled everything and named Karen as Missy's killer. For the first time, Karen felt desperation seep through her, and she started to cry. She had thought she was too smart to get caught, but now everything was falling apart. Desperately, Karen placed all the blame on Laura. She told Detective Gray that she'd just stood there in the stream, too paralyzed by fear to do anything. It was Laura who'd held Missy underwater and drowned her. When Detective Gray asked Karen to stand up, she thought for a moment that the officer believed her. Instead, Gray handcuffed her and announced she was under arrest on suspicion of first-degree murder. Then the detective went to Laura's room and flipped the script. She told Laura that Karen had blamed everything on her. For nearly 50 minutes, Laura sat there with a stoic look on her face, staring down Detective Gray. She refused to say anything. But finally, Laura broke. She told her that Karen had made her do it. Karen was the one who wanted to teach Missy a lesson, and Laura just went along with it. She also confirmed that Eva had gone back to the cars when the murder happened. Gray handcuffed and arrested Laura, too, on the same charge, first-degree murder. Then it was time for Detective Gray to tell Missy's family the news. She went to their house and sat them down. She told them that they had found Missy's killers and that they were Karen and Laura. Irene broke down. Both girls were like second daughters to her. Over the last few years, Karen had been indispensable to her. She'd helped Irene cope. She couldn't wrap her mind around the fact that her daughter's murderer had been living in her house. But as the truth sunk in, Irene's disbelief turned to anger. She wanted to see Karen and Laura behind bars for what they had done. Just a few weeks later, in August 1988, a judge ruled that Karen would be tried as an adult, even though she'd been 17 at the time of the murder, While they awaited trial, 20-year-old Karen and 21-year-old Laura were sent to Sybil Brand Institute, a maximum security facility for women. They were there for over a year. Finally, in January of 1990, Karen and Laura's trial began. When they walked into the courtroom, there was a noticeable reaction. These women weren't the hardened criminals people had expected. Instead, they were dressed in skirts and pastel-colored sweaters. Laura even had a pink bow clipped into her hair. It was a calculated attempt to look like innocent young women, not brutal killers. But it was all an act, one that was easy to see through once the prosecution brought in their witnesses. The key testimony came from Eva, who told the story of what happened the day Missy was murdered. The jury hung on her every word as she told the court what she saw and what she heard. By the time Eva was done testifying, there was little doubt in anyone's mind that Karen and Laura were guilty. Even their defense seemed half-hearted. Their lawyer cross-examined Eva and suggested that perhaps she was the real murderer. But that was a stretch. After all, Karen and Laura had confessed and neither of them had placed the blame on Eva. On January 31st, just three weeks after the start of the trial, the jury returned with their verdict. They found 22-year-olds Karen and Laura guilty of second-degree murder. They hadn't found any evidence that the girls had planned the murder ahead of time. Laura showed no emotional reaction to the news. She simply stood up and walked out of the courtroom, accepting her fate. Karen, on the other hand, cried, though the tears were for herself. It was the only time she showed emotion in the courtroom. Until that moment, she really thought she would get away with it all. Both women were sentenced to 15 years to life for murdering their best friend. They were released in 2011 and 2012 on parole after serving over 20 years each. After her time in jail, Karen wrote a memoir about the murder and even made a film deal. The Avila family was distraught. Not only was Missy's killer once again free, but now she was going to profit from the crime. So the Avalas fought back. They went to California lawmakers. In 2015, the state passed Missy's Law, which requires any publisher of a work written by a criminal to contact the victim's families. They can't stop the publication, but it gives victims' families the chance to fight back in the court of public opinion. It certainly wouldn't bring Missy back, but at least her legacy would protect other victims in this one small way. The Avilas also sued Karen and pleaded with the publisher, who agreed to make Karen's book free, which meant she would receive no profits from the work. Because when you've done wrong, when you've hurt people as deeply as Karen and Laura did, you don't deserve to profit from that pain. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Karen Severson and Laura Doyle, amongst the many sources we used, we found Missy's Murder, Passion, Betrayal, and Murder in Southern California by Karen Kingsbury, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Listeners, there's no better time than right now to open your heart to the hit Spotify original from Parcast, Blind Dating. Every Wednesday, find out if personality alone is enough to make a love connection. Follow Blind Dating, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.